Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. This time, we're going to be talking about influenza. Now, here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're pretty much right smack in the middle of our peak incidence of influenza. Influenza is a pretty big topic. There's a fair degree of controversy surrounding both testing and treatment. But before we get to the back and forth of why one should or should not test or why one should or should not treat, let's start with the basics. Influenza is a respiratory illness caused by influenza viruses, influenza A and B. Classically, influenza is characterized by the abrupt onset of fever, cough, sore throat, rhinorrhea, myalgias, headache, and fatigue. Nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea are possible symptoms, but are generally more commonly seen in children. The predominance of GI symptoms can vary year to year. As you can tell by the constellation of symptoms, it's pretty broad, and it makes diagnosing influenza maybe a bit challenging uh, if you're just doing it clinically. The JAMA Rational Clinical Exam Series identifies a few key symptoms that are somewhat helpful in altering the chance that your patient has influenza. Now, for adults or children, the absence of a fever carries a negative likelihood ratio of 0.4. Absence of a cough carries a negative likelihood ratio of 0.42. In presence of nasal congestion, a negative likelihood ratio of 0.49. You'll note none of these negative likelihood ratios are anywhere close to the ideal value of 0.1 where your post-test probability is highly likely to change. For adults over the age of 60, the constellation of fever and cough with an abrupt onset has a positive likelihood ratio of 5.4, which is pretty good to say that it's more likely that your patient has influenza. But really, before we get far too in the weeds here, and before we start talking about the additive role of rapid influenza testing uh, and the diagnosis of influenza, I want to take a journey back into the past and talk a little bit about why we care so much about the flu. The story of why we care so much about the flu starts in Haskell County, Kansas. It's a small rural farming county. Uh, It's a community of a population of about 1,720 people. In January and February of 1918, exactly 100 years ago from this year, Dr. Loring Miner stood face-to-face with an epidemic of influenza cases unlike any he had seen before. Young, previously healthy people were coming down with influenza-like illnesses that progressed rapidly to pneumonia, respiratory failure, and death. You know, the epidemic raged through the community with scores of men, women, and children becoming ill, but as quickly as the illness had appeared, by the end of March it had disappeared a sudden wave washing over the population of the rural farming community only to recede as quickly as it had come in. At the time, influenza was not a reportable illness. The illness and cases, however, were so dramatic that Dr. Miner reported the presence of the illness to the U.S. Public Health Service, where it was later published in the Public Health Reports, which was the forebearer to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly we know of today. By doing so, he recorded the first cases of influenza, which would eventually spread like wildfire into a world held in the throes of the First World War. Now, it's not clear whether or not central Kansas is the true origin of the influenza virus that led to the flu pandemic. The necessary components are certainly present geographically. Central Kansas sits along a migration path for sandhill cranes and pig and poultry farming in close proximity to human population are all present in Haskell County. Epidemiologic and historic studies have not yielded a definitive origin of the virus where the genome shifted suddenly, creating a new virus capable of causing a violent immune response and respiratory failure among the young and previously healthy. Other possible origins include an outbreak of so-called purulent bronchitis that was noted among British troops in 1916 and 17, and localized outbreaks of a severe form of influenza were also reported in China in late 1917. Most scholars, however, find that the rapid spread of influenza across Europe is associated with the arrival of American soldiers and therefore strongly implicates the United States as the 
country of origin. 300 miles east of Haskell County, Kansas, lay Camp Funston, holding over 56,000 Army soldiers, training and preparing for battle in Europe. And on March 4th of 1918, the first soldier was reported ill with influenza. Three weeks later, 1,100 soldiers were hospitalized with influenza complications, and at least an equal amount were being treated with less severe illness. By the middle of March, now in Georgia, at Camp Forest and Camp Greenleaf, soldiers were reporting ill with influenza. By the end of April, 24 of the 36 main army camps had seen outbreaks of influenza. Globally, the pandemic flu spread in three great waves. It arrived in a European continent gripped by World War I by way of boat, first reported in Brest, France, which was a major disembarking point for American soldiers. The first wave in early 1918 peaked in late spring and early summer, and while it caused significant morbidity, the first wave was not as mortal as the latter waves. Doctors in the British Navy admitted scores with influenza in May and June, with only four dying. Presaging what would come later in the year, however, a French army outpost saw almost 50% of their nearly 1,000 soldiers become ill, with 50 of them dying from their illness. As a point to note here, death from the pandemic flu was from respiratory failure due to ARDS-like state. A significant pulmonary hemorrhage is so severe and unusual that it prompted a Chicago, Illinois forensic pathologist to investigate whether or not it represented a brand new illness. The summer of 1918 was relatively quiet. Few reported cases. Late summer and early fall would, however, see the full brunt and horror of the pandemic flu play out. An army training base of 45,000 soldiers south of Boston, Camp Devens, had an army hospital capable of caring for 1,200 patients. On September 7th, a soldier presented with an illness initially thought to be meningitis, delirious, screaming when touched. He would be the first of what were initially dozens to come down with the worst influenza the world had ever seen. But at the peak of the outbreak... The hospital, again, capable of caring for only 1,200 patients at a time, saw 1,543 soldiers reported ill with influenza in a single day. The description of the illness are truly terrifying. Young, healthy soldiers, initially with symptoms of typical influenza, within hours were thrown into the grips of respiratory failure and shock. Quoting from Roy Grist, a physician at the hospital, two hours after admissions, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones, and a few hours later, you can see the cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over the face. It is only a matter of a few hours, then, until death comes. It is horrible. Hundreds of soldiers die every day from the illness. This terrible second wave spread worldwide throughout the fall and into November and early December of 1918. The pandemic strain of flu came to be called the Spanish flu, due to censorship of an American and European press geared towards keeping morale high while war raged in Europe. The social impact of influenza was dramatic as well, with entire small towns in rural America attempting to bar outsiders from entering, and scores of children left orphaned as, so as parents died of a terrible disease. The third wave would strike shortly thereafter, spreading globally from February to April of 1919. This third wave, much like the first wave, was less virulent and mortal than the second wave. All told, by the summer of 1919, it's estimated that 500 million people worldwide, almost a third of the world's population at the time, had become ill with the influenza virus. An estimated 50 and up to 100 million people died from influenza and its complications. 3-6% to 6 of the world's population dead from a rapidly spreading fatal respiratory illness. More than all the deaths in World War I and II combined. 
to understand the emergence of pandemic flu, you must understand the concept of antigenic shift and drift. Affecting only influenza A, antigenic shift is a major change of the genome encoding the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase proteins. Such shifts result in an influenza virus so dissimilar to previous strains of influenza that the human body has no immunologic protection and can result in pandemic outbreaks. Antigenic drift is the slower accumulation of genetic mutations to either influenza A or B, resulting in more subtle protein changes. These new versions of old viruses are more easily recognized by the immune system, and these are the viruses we see causing traditional seasonal outbreaks of influenza. Was antigenic drift responsible for the three different waves of pandemic influenza in 1918 and 1919? Ultimately, it's not known for sure, as the only isolates of virus that have been able to be sequenced come from the second and most deadly wave. The sequencing efforts from these isolates show that the strain of H1N1 influenza type A present in 1918 had two H1N1 receptor binding variants, one with a mixed affinity for human and avian receptors, and another with a high affinity for the human receptor. Recombinant influenza viruses with one to five of the neuraminidase and hemagglutinin gene segments of the 1918 H1N1 virus have been produced, and in vivo studies show that these versions are extremely pathogenic in mice, causing significant activation of apoptosis pathways with significant tissue damage, oxidative damage. And to this day, it's not entirely clear as to why the 1918 H1N1 influenza virus was so deadly to the otherwise young and healthy. Theories being about include that the respiratory infiltrates and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema seen in autopsy were a result of a vigorous immune system of the young and healthy, the body's protective mechanisms sent into extreme overdrive effectively drowning the victims. It's also thought that some precursor virus was present in, the, in circulation in the late 1800s, conferring a partial immunity to those alive at the time. Now, a hundred years later, where do we stand? Influenza is a reportable illness now. We have rapid real-time testing available to us, wonderful, highly effective treatment options, as well as vaccines that can stop influenza in its tracks, right? Not entirely. First, let's take a look at influenza vaccines. Flu vaccines are tricky things. In 1931, Ernest Goodpasture and his colleagues at Vanderbilt University pioneered the techniques of viral culture by an embryonated hen's eggs, which led to the development of the first influenza vaccine by Jonas Salk and several other co-workers later in the 1930s. Later in the 1940s, the U.S. military implemented the first approved inactivated influenza vaccines. Impregnated chicken eggs are still used today for the manufacture of influenza vaccines, though cell-cultured influenza vaccines are also used. Today, the influenza vaccines administered are either tri- or quadrivalent. That is, they're vaccines against three or four of the possible strains of influenza virus. Because of antigenic drift, there are constant, subtle changes in genetic mutation that make previous year's vaccines largely ineffective against new circulating strains of virus. The WHO has a global influenza surveillance network which collects and isolates circulating viruses globally. Based on this surveillance and research, each year they pick the three or four viruses they predict to be the most common viruses in circulation. Because of the prolonged production time for vaccines, however, there are significant opportunities for the virus to subtly mutate and dodge the vaccine. Also, the WHO might swing and miss with their research. They might predict that a certain strain of influenza A will be in circulation, only to find that a different strain of influenza A found its way into circulation. And again, because the production of vaccines is a time-intensive process measured in weeks and months, 
And because the influenza outbreaks are relatively rapid, weeks and days, by the time flu season has struck, it's too late to change the vaccine up to match the actively circulating virus. Also, because influenza vaccines account for subtle genetic changes caused by antigenic drift, they don't account for dramatic changes of antigenic shift. There's little defense for the emergence of an entirely new strain of influenza virus, such as what happened in 1918. The CDC monitors for the effectiveness of seasonal vaccines. The absolute best match since 2005 was in 2010 and 11, when seasonal flu vaccine was 60% effective against circulating flu strains. This year, despite media reports of a terrible match, the current effectiveness rates are 39%. Obviously, that's less than perfect, but it's certainly better than the 2014-15 season where the effectiveness was 19%. All right, well, let's now tackle the topic of rapid influenza tests. Influenza test most commonly used, at least in our shop, is the rapid influenza diagnostic test, which is obtained by means of a nasopharyngeal swab. These tests have the benefit of being rapidly available. The test itself only takes 15 minutes to perform, but... They do lack in sensitivity and specificity when compared to the gold standard of viral culture or PCR techniques. Sensitivities for rapid flu swabs range from 50 to 70%, and specificities range from 90 to 95%. Because of the imperfections in the test, knowing the prevalence of influenza activity in your patient population becomes extremely important. In low prevalence states, the false positive rate can range from 44 to 94%, depending on the exact specificity of your test. And in high prevalence states, conversely, the false negative rate can also be quite high, with 25 to 30% of negative tests being falsely negative. There are also several factors that can influence the quality of the sample collected and therefore decrease the sensitivity of the test. To optimize the sensitivity of the test, you should be testing early in the disease course, within the first four days of illness. Obtaining the flu swab isn't the most comfortable of procedures for the patient, and basically what you need to do is insert the swab into the nasal passage about half the distance from the nares to the patient's ear and rotate the swab several times. But before you ever really order a flu swab, you should really ask yourself, whether or not the results of the test are truly going to change your management of the patient. Are you looking for a cause of a febrile illness in a vulnerable patient population? Will you initiate or withhold treatment based on the results? If it's flu season and the prevalence of the disease is high, based on the symptoms of the patient's presentation, are you going to have faith in a negative test or are you going to ignore it and say the patient has the flu anyhow? If it's not flu season and the prevalence of disease is low, and the chance of a false positive is therefore quite high, based on the patient's presentation, are you going to believe a positive flu test? You have to answer these questions before clicking the order button to really make performing the test worthwhile. What about treatment? All right, well, there are five licensed antiviral agents available in the United States. Three of the agents are neuromenidase inhibitors. These are oral oseltamivir, inhaled zanamivir, and IV paramivir. The other two agents are amantadines, unlike um, the amantadine and wolverine, these agents, amantadine and romantadine, are highly ineffective, with greater than 99% resistance seen in circulating strains of influenza. To this point, the resistance to the neuroaminidase inhibitors is relatively low. Neuroaminidase inhibitors are thought to act by preventing viral exiting from host cells, decreasing viral load and thereby limiting the severity of illness. So let's turn our focus to the most commonly prescribed treatment for influenza, oseltamivir, brand name Tamiflu. Per the CDC, antiviral treatment is recommended as early as possible for any patient with confirmed or suspected influenza who is hospitalized, has severe, progressive, or complicated illness, 
or those patients at higher risk of influenza complications. And they define those patients who are at higher risk of influenza complication to be children under two years of age, adults older than 65, those with chronic pulmonary, cardiovascular, renal, hepatic, hematologic, metabolic disease, including diabetes, chronic neurologic conditions such as stroke, developmental delay, spinal cord injury, as well as those who are immunocompromised, pregnant women, the morbidly obese, residents of nursing facilities and other chronic care facilities, those under 19 years of age on chronic aspirin therapy, and American Indians or Alaska Natives. Seeing as I literally just described almost every patient presenting to an emergency department, you can see that the CD is pretty aggressive about recommending the use of neuraminidase inhibitors. They go further to recommend that providers consider the use of antivirals in previously healthy symptomatic patients without high-risk features, provided that they are within 48 hours of symptom onset. To support these aggressive treatment recommendations, the CDC cites a number of studies that have shown the effectiveness of neuromedicine inhibitors in decreasing symptom duration and even preventing flu-related complications, such as hospitalizations and pneumonia. And over the years, however, there's been some controversy as it pertains to the quality of the studies on which the CDC bases its recommendations. Discrepancies in the data and the possibility of publication bias led Jefferson et al. working with the Cochrane Group to perform a meta-analysis of both published and unpublished clinical study reports. The clinical study reports until that time had been confidential, seen only by regulators and manufacturers. In performing the review, the authors found that 60% of patient data from randomized placebo-controlled phase 3 trials had gone unpublished. In their review, they included only trials for which they had complete clinical study reports. And this review looked at previously healthy people and included patients with your standard fare of chronic illnesses, diabetes and asthma, etc., but excluded those conditions with significant effects on the immune system. The authors looked at the effect of neuromedicine inhibitors administered by any route as compared to placebo on symptom relief, hospitalization, complications, and harms. They also looked at the use of neuromedicine inhibitors for prophylaxis. So what did they find? Well, let's take a look at the positives first. In terms of time to first symptom relief, Ulsultamavir reviews the time to first symptom relief by 16.8 hours. This is a statistically significant effect with a p-value of less than 0.0001. The real clinical effect means that the patient started feeling better on the sixth day after onset of therapy as opposed to day seven. In terms of prophylaxis, oseltamivir and zanamivir reduced the risk of symptomatic influenza both in individuals and in households with a risk reduction of 3.05% and 13.6% respectively, leading to a number needed to treat to benefit of 33 for individuals and 7 for households. But what about the development of pneumonia? The study authors found that oseltamivir reduced the incidence of self-reported investigator-mediated unverified pneumonia with a risk difference of 1%, and a number needed to treat the benefit of 100. However, as you can probably judge by the somewhat hand-wavy qualifications of self-reported, investigator, mediated, and unverified, the outcome in question for that treatment benefit is not the most robust. Indeed, none of the Ulsultamavir treatment studies reported effects on radiologically confirmed pneumonia. Studies looking at Xanamavir, another neuraminidase inhibitor, did show moderate effect on radiographically confirmed pneumonia with a number needed to treat the benefit of 311 and an absolute risk reduction of 0.32%. The authors found that treatment with ulcetimavir was also associated with a decrease in the risk of developing diarrhea, which is obviously a good thing, risk difference of 2.33%, and a number needed to treat the benefit of 43 
and they found that the use of elsotamivir was associated with a decreased risk of cardiac events with a risk difference of 0.68 and a number needed to treat the benefit of 148. But what didn't it do? In terms of hospitalization, ulcetamivir had no effect on the rate of hospitalizations, with a risk difference of 0.15% and a 95% confidence interval ranging from negative 0.78 to 0.91. And there was no effect on serious influenza complications that would have led to withdrawal from the study. No medication comes without potential harm, so what are the risks associated with ulcetamivir treatment? Well, ulcetamivir leads to an increased risk of nausea, risk difference of 3.66%, and a number needed to treat to harm of 28. Increased risk of vomiting as well, risk difference of 4.56%, and a number needed to treat to harm of 22. And there's also risk of psychiatric effects with a variety of different types, including mania and delusions, hallucinations, abnormal behaviors, and depression. And the mechanisms for it haven't been well elucidated, but trials do show a dose-response-dependent effect on the incidence of psychiatric side effects, with more, than, with more side effects seen at higher 300 milligram dosing as compared to 150 milligram. So, at the end of the day, treatment with ulcetamivir will reduce the time to first symptom relief, and it may very slightly reduce the incidence of clinically suspected pneumonia, though a less than rigorous definition makes this effect a bit of a soft call. It won't keep you from being hospitalized, and there's a good chance that you'll develop some nausea vomiting while taking the medication. Your diarrhea might get better, but if you're especially if you're on a high dose, you could end up with some unpleasant psychiatric side effects. But there probably is a role for prophylaxis and treatment with ulcetamivir is associated with decreased viral production and shedding. And for your average, otherwise healthy patient with an acute onset of symptoms, it's reasonable to sit down and have a risk-benefit discussion with them with regards to their, their goals of care, the expected benefits of the treatment are. The studies looking into the use of neuraminidase inhibitors have largely excluded patients with significant immunocompromising conditions. So for those patients and for patients with severe disease, the CDC would recommend treatment with ulcetamivir. You should, however, also consider that the patient could have a concomitant bacterial infection. For the truly ill patient, it's reasonable out of the emergency department to investigate for a possible source of a bacterial infection and, if concerned significantly, to start appropriate broad-spectrum antibiotics in addition to treating with ulcetamivir. Influenza is a remarkable virus. Constantly mutating, constantly evolving, it's challenging for the technology of 2018 to keep up with a virus that killed up to 100 million people over the span of 18 months 100 years ago. Our treatment options are still significantly limited, and our current process of producing vaccines and approach to vaccine production still leaves significant potential for widespread influenza outbreaks. What does the future hold for influenza and humanity? Well, we hold out hopes for a more rapid means of vaccine production, as well as a hope for a universal vaccine. We also hold out hope for treatment that does more than make you feel better sooner. And until that time, we're still vulnerable to antigenic shift and the appearance of a novel influenza virus. Thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you learned a thing or two. And we'll be happy to see you soon on the next Tame the Shrew podcast.